0: Hey everyone, what's up? This is Jamie Pride, and welcome to episode two of the Failure Proof Podcast. Yeah. Hey everyone, my name is Jamie Pride, and thank you for joining us on the podcast where we explore performance, resilience, and the mindset needed to thrive in the modern workplace. On today's show, I interview Ben Sharp. Ben is a business leader, mentor, and investor. He has over 20 years' experience in sales, marketing, operations, and strategy in the digital media and ad technology industry. Ben co-founded Allure Media, which he subsequently sold to Fairfax in 2012, and then went on to launch the AdRoll business into Australia in 2014. As a mentor and investor, he has supported Conversant Media, helped launch Audience Republic and more recently operated as an entrepreneur in residence for the QUT Collider Accelerator program. Ben is also an active investor into a range of early stage technology businesses. In today's episode, Ben shares his views on angel investing, what it takes to be a great startup founder and how he has overcome adversity in his career. There's lots of great takeaways from this interview, so I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Welcome to the podcast.
1: No worries, Jamie. Thank you very much for having me.
0: Oh, mate, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, so we've spoken um, previously about your your history, um, but it'd be great to kind of hear from you. Just tell us a bit about your journey. Um, you know where you've come from and, and what you're doing now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I guess my my background's a real mix of both startup founder and also exec roles. So I'm mm-hmm. um, got a really good uh, mixture of both. Uh, you know how to run a business, how to start a business, and how to build and manage teams. So mm-hmm um you know it's a, it's quite interesting if i rewind probably about almost 20 years Um, I started off in the world of digital media at Yahoo in, uh, about 2001. Um, and my role at the time was, uh, selling media onto Yahoo. Um, we were selling something that people didn't know what they were buying. We didn't know what we were selling. So, um, lots of education and, uh, you know, it was a, you know, pretty interesting, exciting, um, and also really challenging time. When I started at Yahoo, it was when that first generation of Yahoos had, um, you know, been there since about 96, 97. Seven. Um, they were all just about leaving at that stage, so there was this crossover. So you know that's why I describe us as that second generation of Yahoos that uh, that came in. Um, over that six years that I was at Yahoo, um, ended up running about half the um, Australian sales team, and you know built really great relationships with uh, you know both um, agencies in Australia, but also lots of brands direct. Um, and there's and a bit of a of
0: Yahoo mafia in
1: the Australian startup scene as well, isn't Absolutely. there? Absolutely. <laughs> if you have a look at who's who in the world of. Um, media and technology and startups a it lot is, of people um, came out of yahoo australia oh you could you could put the list together tony four alan jones craig galvin oh. um liz joyce there is uh nick jones there is a whole range of um people that were at yahoo that are you know actively involved in not just media but in the in the startup space you know grant mccarthy um oh. running adventure out here so yeah there's a there's a lot of us out here that you know have uh, continued on in the in the world of um digital media ad technology and uh, and the startup world so you you know great, great grounding, and uh, I guess a um, yeah, pretty good, uh, good ed- education experience for for all of us. Mm. Um, so I got to the end of two thousand and six at uh, at Yahoo, and I was massively frustrated. Um, I wanted to go and start my own business. Um, I had no idea what that business was going to be. I just wanted to go and start something. Mm. Um, I had these ideas of, um, you know, republishing uh, content out of the US, um, building a local media property. Um, You know, there were some areas that I knew would be um, quite lucrative, um, automotive, um, finance, business, and a couple of other things like that. Um, And just through networking around the space, you know, I'd left Yahoo, um, spent a couple of months just speaking to as many people as I possibly could about, you know, these ideas that I had. And, um, quite coincidentally got introduced to, um, Craig Blair over at Nessus at the time. He's now obviously over at, uh, at Airtree mm. and, um, was sitting in the, re- in the meeting with him and, you uh, know, saying, listen, I've got this idea of a business I want to start. I'm not exactly sure how to get it off the ground. Um, but, you know, is this something that you'd be interested in doing? And he, you know, got this kind of wry smile um, whilst we were talking. And I'm like, what's going on here? And he goes, you must be a fly on the wall in here or something like that because we're trying to start a business up very similar to what you're describing and we've got no idea how to monetize it. Um, my background sales. And he said, hey, we've got this idea, you know, we have got uh, this relationship with Gorka Media. We're going to rub- republish some stuff out into Australia. Um, we've got this other guy um, who we've engaged to help us with the editorial um and content strategy but i think you guys might work well together um you've got complementary skills so why don't you um you know sit down together and see if there's something that you could work on so um that was chris jans and myself um sat down in a room together for you know about a month and um built a business which was Alua media mm. um when we started Alua media was basically a sheet of paper with two paragraphs on it you know it was like um, I guess you'd say a you know local publishing business, localized content, um, uh, local editorial strategy, and we'll we'll do some innovative, interesting things around these two properties that we launched at the time. We ended up launching with Gizmodo, which is a consumer mm. tech site, um, uh, probably the largest consumer tech site or consumer tech blog, um, in the world at the time, and Defamer, which subsequently uh, closed a, a couple of months later or a couple of years later. Um, so. Built and ran the Allure Media business. Um, you know, my role was uh, commercial director and co-founder. So I built the sales team, built sales. You know, as the founder, I was out in market. You know, flogging uh, media on uh, on Allure Media for the first couple of years, as you as you absolutely have to do inside your own business. And uh, you know, worked there up until the point of sale when the business was sold to Fairfax in in 2012. Mm-hmm. Um, And did you go across? No, no, I didn't. I was really vocal about not wanting to be absorbed into a, you know, into a large corporate, yeah, large corporate publisher. You know, I felt like I'd done that at, um, at Yahoo and, Uh, Didn't really want to go back into a, um, you know, into a into a large publisher Mm. again. So I think I've had my corporate days. Um, Quite like the innovative, um, high growth, you know, opportunity businesses as opposed to those, um, you know, larger, more established uh, established corporates. So um, yeah, so got to uh, the, I guess mid to, you know, midway through 2012 or thereabouts, and uh, you know, spent a bit of time at home, which was uh, which was awesome. I've got two kids. um, Got to actually see them, Mm. which was um, yeah, which was a real change. And uh, you know, started doing a bit of um, investing at the time. I invested into Conversant Media um, at some point in 2013 or thereabouts. Um, We sold that business to APN Outdoor, and at the end of 2016, um, and started mentoring and helping you know other people in the startup ecosystem at the at the time. Um, 2014, I launched the AdRoll business into Australia, so built that business from scratch. Um, obviously, a US business. So I, I was the, uh, you know, local lead for that. And, uh, you know, in the time that I was at AdRoll, um, the other, you know, I've also then, you know, gone and invested into a whole range of other businesses, Audience Republic, First Rung, um, and, and a range of others over the past couple of years.
0: And, and I guess, do you believe that sort of that corporate career has helped you so that you've got a good balance of sort of startups and, and corporate? Um, I'm not sure if there's, you know, there's a, a particular, Pedigree that a, that a startup founder should have, but I but I've sort of spent some time in the corporate world as well. Um, it kind of taught me that I didn't necessarily f- want the corporate world, you know, and then sort of you know I learn a lot though um, there in, in terms of big big company operations. Um, did you find that you're drawing upon your experience at Yahoo
1: and at AdRoll when you're speaking to startups now? Absolutely, I think you you absolutely need either the experience yourself inside a corporate type of environment or you need access to people that have that experience as well so you can learn from them you know what are the benefits that come from a corporate type of environment um structure process systems um you know operating how to scale you know things like that you know all come from a corporate environment you know how to embed and build culture um and those cultural programs so you know these are things that you know everyone can learn a lot from the you know the corporate environments um it doesn't mean to say that um you can always do those things inside corporate, but you can take a lot of those learnings and apply them inside your inside your business. So, you know, I think my you know my personal experience is that hey, corporate's great. Um, uh, and there's so many different flavors of what corporate is. There's you know established um, traditional corporate. There's you know your high growth or, or scale up corporates um, that operate very similar to a um, a startup environment. And you know, from a personal perspective, those are the things that I'm I'm attracted to.
0: When you meet founders who or, or- or I guess people who are considering founding a startup and they're coming from the corporate world, do you have advice for them? Like, do you think there's a one size fits all? Like, don't don't sort of do this, or do you have sort of, I guess, some biases around sort of people from particular corporate
1: paths that do better in startup? Uh, it's I, I try not to give advice around what not to do but Mm. more advice to say hey these might be some of the challenges or or differences and you know i'll talk to particular examples of that um not everyone that's worked in corporate can make the transition to a startup environment Mm. and the reason for that is that when you're in a corporate you've got lots of support around you you've got lots of people um social network's pretty good uh and uh, you can quite often have a large expense account you suddenly Mm. go into a startup and You've got to do everything yourself. Um, you have to set strategy. You have to, you know, do all the tactics yourself. You have to implement, you have to action everything. You have to do the photocopying and yeah, buy the papers. Um, yep. Yeah. You have to, you have to do absolutely everything. And not everyone is well suited to, um, to make that transition. And I've seen firsthand, you know, people have come from a, you know, large corporate media environment and come into, you know, business like Allure Media mm. and just. Really struggle with that transition. So you know it's really important when you are you know either starting the business up yourself or if you're recruiting people into you, into your startup um, that you really drill down with them on what you know what is it that they're coming into and uh, what that difference will actually be. Yeah,
0: look, and I've had the same experience, and and I don't think you can you can kind of have broad generalisations, but um, I've seen sales people struggle specifically. Um, people come from large enterprise sale, come into startup and struggle with. I guess the lack of support. You know, there's no engineering. There's not a lot of marketing material. Sometimes we don't even know what the price is at any one point in time. It may change. Um, and 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 I've seen people succeed as well. But you know, I see a lot of people come from large enterprise software sales into startup and and really struggle. Um, and they struggle yeah. even though they say in the interview, "Look, you know, I get it. I understand what it's going to be like." And and it's a bit of a culture shock when they arrive.
1: Yeah, and I think that's really important when you you know run salespeople through an interview mm. process, especially if they're coming out of a large enterprise environment. You know, if they're coming. From from a Salesforce, they're coming from a Google. Yeah. Um, you know, it is. Hey, what is it that motivates you? You know, how are you going to feel when it's you know eight o'clock at night? Um, you've got something to turn around by ten o'clock the next morning. You've got no one there to support you or, or build the deck for you. Um, how are you going to feel if you're actually doing your media plan? Um, you know, the presentation yourself and, and all of that type of stuff. You actually put them in a scenario and actually see how they um, they react to that as well. But the other thing, and this is you know when I was recruiting my team at um, at AdRoll in twenty fourteen. Uh, you know, we were really clear about wanting to recruit a bunch of people from Google to to start with. Um, you know, it really helped, you know, set a bar for, you know, what the business was. Um, and I described the, you know, the candidates that we interviewed from Google, they fell into three buckets. Um, there were these, you know, a big chunk of the Google workforce is what I described. And this is not a negative term, but institutionalized, you know, oh. they absolutely love Google. They're going to be there for a long time. They work really well there. Um, you've got your low performance as well, kind of below that. And they're not the people you want to try and recruit but then you've got these amazing performing people at Google they share all of the attributes of these you know what you'd describe as institutionalized but they're restricted by mm. what they can do inside either a Google or a Salesforce or anyone else um, and you know they're entrepreneurial they really try and push the boundaries and they want to build something and those were the people that we were looking for and you know situational you know episode style questions um, were the things that really uncovered you know those people that we that we took into our team. And you can get some great talent. Absolutely, yeah. some hidden gems. Oh, there, there is. And, you know, if you, if you think of, you know, whether it's Google or Facebook or Salesforce or any of the, these large businesses, they invest so much into training, culture, um, personal development, um, you know, how to operate um, really well. There is some amazing talent inside these, um, these large businesses. A lot of these people are scared to, to leave and I totally understand mm. that because you only get one ticket to leave a Salesforce or one ticket to leave Google. You know, once, yep. um, and you want to make sure when you do it, it's, it's for the right bet.
0: Yeah. And look, having worked at Salesforce, I know, you know, I cashed my ticket in, um, to go and run realestate.com.au, but you are, you only get to cash that ticket in once. And yeah, it is something you, you sort of weigh in the, in the back of your mind. Am I, am I doing the right thing? Absolutely. Um, you know, leaving, you know, potentially all star companies, um, you know, in the, in the software space. Um, I guess now, what are you doing now? You're now working for, um, you know, yourself. You're doing a lot of, of advisory.
1: Yep. Uh, so I, I've had a really interesting um, six months. So my role at AdRoll um, uh, finished at the end of last year. Um, it was traumatic at the time. Um, it kind of relates to maybe one of the other questions you, you might ask me shortly. But um, uh, for six months I've had... A lot of fun. Um, I've got my businesses that I, that I work with and I've spent a fair bit of time with them, which has been fantastic. Um, I've spent the last three months working with Queensland University of Technology on, uh, their accelerator program called Collider. Um, so mentoring a group of, uh, 10 startups through, you know, their early journey. Um, and that's only just wrapped up at the end of last week. So, um, but you know, I've been doing that and investing into a couple of different businesses. So I've been a free spirit for for six months, which has been awesome. And yeah, it can be a lot of fun,
0: right? I mean, and so when you're, when you're mentoring, Um, early-stage startups, which you've been doing recently at Collider. What do you say to them in terms of sort of people who are just starting their journey? Um, you know, there's obviously, there's a lot of conversation around, you know, lean startup and, and looking at product market fit and, you know, business model and value proposition and all of the, I guess, the skills that are needed to be developed. But, but in terms of if they said to you, you know, Ben, what's it going to be like? You know, what do I, what do I need to do to prepare myself for this journey? Um, or can you possibly prepare yourself for the journey? But, you know, for early stage founders, what, what do you say?
1: It's a bit like having a baby. It doesn't matter how many times people tell you that it's going to be disruptive like you wouldn't believe to your overall life. Nothing prepares you. Um, The first question I ask people when they come to me and they say, hey, I'm starting a business um, or I'm at the really early stages of starting something. um, uh, What advice or could you help me? The first thing I ask them is why? Why are you doing what, it? Why are, are you motivation? doing it? Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's really important because if you don't have a purpose for what you're doing, then um you're you're chasing your tail from the from the start. So, you know, when you start working with or you start you know start to see a startup you know emerge and these founders you know get be, get behind their their business, you really want to see you know personally why are they doing it um but also you know what's the purpose for their business as well. Do you think a lot of founders have given that thought? Um, I think I
0: think a lot of founders I meet have have identified a market opportunity. Um, and I think they have a view of what it's going to be like, but I haven't met too many founders that have even considered what it's going to be like to be a startup founder and what they may go on in their journey, and maybe it's hard to imagine, but, but I, I haven't I haven't met many who've given that consideration.
1: If you've never done a startup before, um, if you've never really worked inside a startup um, and your view of the startup world is going to a couple of pitch nights, um, maybe walking around the startup hub, mm. um, you know, speaking to some mates that basically say, I just raised a couple hundred grand as my first round of funding, mm. managed to do it relatively easily. Your, your perception is um startup world is – relatively easy a lot of fun i get to wear a hoodie um Mm. and a branded t-shirt and um i don't have to wear a you know a collared shirt or anything like Mm. that so you know the uh, initial perception is hey this is really cool it feels a bit like san francisco walking around sydney um so i think you know that's the that's the perception i don't think you can tell people enough how difficult it is to start a business Mm. um how difficult it is to um operate with absolutely no resources um uh, to, you know, kind of continue to bounce back from constant rejection when you're speaking to potential clients, to investors, to, um, even suppliers that you, you might want to work with. So, um, it is, it is very, very hard work. Um, and I don't think anything can prepare you for that other than having done it before. No. And you sort of see that you meet these, um,
0: broad-eyed and bushy-tailed founders and you see them six months later and, and they're sort of either broken or they've survived, you know, and, and I think that, um, you know that's part of, I guess, the trial of of sort of being a founder. But you know, I, I think we need to do a better job of equipping them, and certainly, maybe not necessarily, um, I guess, being able to sort of t- describe exactly what it's going to be like. But set, I think putting support mechanisms in place, either through their accelerators, their co working spaces, their VCs, their investors, um, to be there to support them during that journey. Because oh, like I know personally that I wasn't prepared for. Um, the impact on your personal life or, you know, your health or any of those things that you don't even consider when you're thinking about going into a startup. You really can, you really, when I went into my first business, I was focused on, okay, what problem are we solving? Who are we solving it for? All of the mechanics of a business model, but I wasn't really focused on myself um, and, and sort of the impact that it would have on my family, my relationships, my relations with my friends, you know, hobbies, what are they? I've forgotten about them. Yep. Um, All of those things. and, and, um, you know, uh, to a certain degree, I think the ecosystem reinforces that, which is if you're not working 27 hours a day on your startup, you're not committed. Um, but it does take a toll.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I could probably give two examples here. One, a personal experience and also one from uh, one of my – found or one of the founders of, uh, of a business up at Collider and Brizzy. Um, so – you know this guy. You know my my role at Collider was to help people with vision and commercial strategy, but it ended up being almost life coaching, mm. um, a fair bit of the time. Um, one of the guys actually turned around about three or four weeks ago and just said, "I'm broken." You know, my wife doesn't know why I'm doing this. I've got a full time job. I'm just trying to do my startup on the side. Um, I'd like to be doing my startup full time, but I can't do it. My wife's actually just asking me, "Why am I doing this?" All that she sees is me having either a lot of fun or being just completely absent when I'm at home with uh, with kids what do I do? And I said, listen, the first thing you need to do is make sure that your home life comes first and foremost Mm -hmm. because if you don't have stability there and if you don't have – um, a happy home life then that's going to translate to not being able to execute well either in your full-time job um, or in the startup that you're trying to trying to build as well so you know really ensure that you um that you balance both of those things out in the in the right way um, and then uh, you know on a personal perspective um you know i remember my time at uh at allure after about you know maybe four years of it i actually turned around to our investors and i said i need some support you know right. i feel like i've you know Built a great business here. Um, I'm putting a lot in, um, but I'm not getting any personal development here and mm. I don't know how best to use my time, how to grow, um, how to actually balance things. Um, and you're right. The startup ecosystem finds it really difficult to, um, pro- or has found it really difficult to provide that support because at the time, this is 2012, or 2011, 2012, there was nowhere to turn. So Mm. there were, there weren't even forums to go to. So, um, I think we've got better over the past couple of years, but you know, if I rewind, you know, six or seven years, there was, there was nowhere to turn.
0: And, and I think it's, it's almost a little bit taboo to talk about to a certain degree. I think, you know, we look at it at the surface level and say, okay, as a, as a startup founder, one of the things I missed from the corporate world was that development. Like you you develop in a different way, clearly, and, and you learn a lot of, you know, amazingly relevant skills. Um, but at the same time, you just don't have that focused career development, that focused personal development. Um, and, and, and you long, I think, to, to a certain degree for that sort of, Community that you have in a corporate world that you don't necessarily have in a startup. I think startups are amazingly rewarding in different ways, um, but but certainly, I think we've got a lot better as a community in terms of, of, of sort of recognizing that there are challenges associated with being a founder. Um, and and I think you know one of the things I want to encourage, and um, when I want to speak to you know people in the ecosystem, is this idea of thinking about being a founder over a longer period of time. Uh, most founders think just this, just this. This startup. Yeah. Um and if you think about being an entrepreneur over a 20 year history or 20 year career, um, you think about things completely differently and you think about sustainability in a very different way. And and so I think we can all do these short sprints of, you know, I'm gonna just I'm gonna just get this this product out, or I'm just gonna get this funded, or I'm gonna get an exit and I'll take care of myself after that. Um uh, but if you think about being an entrepreneur over sort of three, four, five startups and, and over a twenty year career. Career, um, you you think a bit about more about okay, well, how do I have the reserves and how do I kind of look at that sustainability over time?
1: Yep, and how do you um, almost how do you grow as an entrepreneur over over mm. time? There's so many ways to develop, right? There is building a network, joining forums that you know operate uh, in and around Sydney and Melbourne. Now getting involved in an accelerator, um, but then there's formal education. You know, so you know some of this can't be downplayed. You know, I've started an, M- an MBA this year um, and. Everyone that I speak to is like, "Why are you doing that for for a late bloomer?" Late bloomer, but it's almost like, "Why are you doing this for a start?" How do you have the time to do it? That's one challenge. But also, you've kind of done an MBA many times over by doing Mm. multi, you know, multiple startups, haven't you? And I said. You have, but all of it's very practical, whereas mm. doing, um, some formal education actually provides a lot of theory, um, and constant, uh, you know, personal development. So I think, you know, as an entrepreneur, you actually sometimes need to think about taking control of your own path yourself, um, but being really careful, uh, not careful, um, being quite um, focused on what it is that you um, that you that you want to chase.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's strange. I mean, I I felt the same. I mean, I had a lot of practical school before I did my MBA, and really enjoyed it because it sort of gave me some language and and some theoretical constructs that allowed me to put some of my practical experience into context. It makes um, you
1: realise you know more than you actually do. Yeah, so, and but, but You're right. I, like that's, that's what I've got out of um, having started an MBA this year. It's actually like there's a bunch of stuff that I know from a practical perspective but having um, some, you know, a platform or, or, or having um, some theory and structure around how to communicate some of that is, um, you know, is really important. So, you know, personally I get a lot out of it.
0: Yeah. And so you're, you're doing a lot of mentoring right now. The elephant in the room is that a lot of those founders may not necessarily be successful in their first startup, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, I think that there's a sort of a misconception that founders need to, you know, develop Facebook or, you know, Instagram on their very first try. Um, and I don't think any, um, any person in any other endeavor would expect to be that successful first time out. And that sort of distorts, I think, new founders' views of success or failure. Um, for me, I'm really passionate about destigmatizing failure. I think failure is an inevitable part of innovation and and progressing. How do you view failure and and have you had a major failure and how do you sort of contextualise failure in your own experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think – We have to embrace failure. I think one of the criticisms that um, any of us could have had about the Australian ecosystem was that failure is something to look down on. Mm. You know, if you've had a failure in the past, it's like, well, you're obviously not very good. You know, Mm. you weren't very good at your startup. You weren't very good at running a business. So how can we trust that you'll do that? Uh, You know, you, you won't do that next time around. So... Um, and I think that's a very Australian way of uh, thinking. If you go over to the US, if you go and embed yourself in San Francisco, very different. You have to have failed at something, mm. um, but show what you've learned from it to be able to get an opportunity next time around. Like you know, quite often, you know, out here it's like you do your first startup, does pretty well, gives you a seat at the table for the next one. Yep. Um, but you've got to have done a startup that's shown some degree of success. Mm. Um, whereas in the US, it's um, do a startup, show that you failed. Um, and then everything that you've learned, um, let's actually apply all the positives to, to the next one. And there's a lot of value there.
0: It, it is. I mean, in my experience, there's definitely a stigma associated with failure in Australia. And and I've, I've, I've copped a lot of flack actually because I talk a lot about failure. And a lot of people have sort of criticized and said, well, you're creating um, a celebration of failure and you're creating a cult of failure and that kind of stuff. And, and that's not the case. I mean, my view is that um, nobody wants to fail, right? I mean, yep. like, nobody goes, well, let's just, you know, knock ourselves out of the park and, and you know, get a nine career of successful failures Um, but I think it's more about it's an inevitability that if you're doing innovative work and you're taking risks that you're going to have some failures. I think the really insightful thing that you just said is that you know, how do we learn from them? You know, can you be self-aware enough as an entrepreneur or a founder to say, do you know what, I screwed up here. Um, I made I made some you know some bad calls, or I wasn't experienced enough, or I wasn't ready, but I am now. Um, but yeah, we I don't think we've got over that hurdle in Australia yet that that we've completely destigmatized failure.
1: Yeah, that's right. I think you know whenever you have a conversation about failure, if you're the one that experienced the failure, you feel as though you're on the back step straight away. Mm-hmm. You've got to explain, you know, what caused it. Um. you know why you know why you're different now as opposed to you know six years ago whenever it happens to be but and everyone has grown a lot and you know quite different experiences along the way so um you know for me failure is one thing that um i think you should absolutely look at whether that's someone that's interviewing for a job or whether they are um pitching for investment it's like hey what's led you to this point um what's been your biggest challenge what have you failed at and what did you learn from that um, mm. along the way? That is, that is absolutely so important. And
0: I didn't even know how to talk about my failures for a while. Like it was like, do you, do you not mention the war? Like, you know, yeah. it's sort of like, do you not? Do you bring it up? Do you steer into it? Do you, you know, and, and I and I probably used a, a couple of different strategies. At first I was like, I'm just not going to say anything at all. Maybe mm. somebody will forget about it and not go away. I'm like, oh, no, the internet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, guess what? Um, uh, then, I, then I sort of said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to talk about, my failure and, and own my mistakes um, but then there comes a point in time where you can kind of talk about it too much and actually mm. one of my mentors said there's a difference between cleaning cleaning wounds and scratching off scabs right so yeah. eventually you sort of get sick about talking about the same thing and you're sort of scratching the scab off rather than sort of cleaning the wound and I think it's a nice analogy um, but when you're talking to founders do you give them any words of wisdom around success or, or failure or as, as you've experienced it or do you just sort of let them experience it themselves?
1: Uh, no no i uh, certainly, if I've invested into a business or if I'm mentoring someone, mm. you want to get as clear a picture around their motivations and, uh, and concerns as much as you can. And the best way to, um, uh, support them or, or explain things is to actually say, Hey, this is something very similar to what I've experienced. And this was the situation. Um, you know, if we're talking about a failure, you know, from my perspective, I actually, you know, look at my time as at AdRoll. So much of it was successful. But the way it finished, I felt like, um, you know, I had a real sense of personal failure attached to it because mm. the decision for Adroll to pull out of the country was completely out of my hands. Um, but I could probably in hindsight – uh, identify a bunch of things that were happening in the lead up to that, which I just did. I just didn't pick up on at the time. Mm. So uh, when I sp- when I speak to founders, I'm like, hey, don't be don't be ashamed to talk about you know your failures, your challenges, um, things that you've done wrong. Let's actually get them out in the open, um, and game plan, role play better ways of having those conversations, but also figure out what we can learn from it so that you can apply that um, you know, those learnings and those techniques to you know this situation when it comes up again. And the- the ad roll situation. How did that affect you? Uh, so, um, at the time, like it was traumatic as anything. You yeah. know, you, you build a business; it's your thing. You're the face of a brand. Um, everyone in the press knows you as the the ad roll guy, and then all of a sudden, mm. you're no longer. Um, so it's like. What the fuck happened? Yep. You know? Um so initially a lot of explaining and you kind of get sick of explaining. You do the same thing, thing up, yeah. over and over again because mm. every time you go to an industry event, a function, a dinner, you know, whatever You're it happens like ben, to.
0: Ben, Admiral, what happened? Yeah, so
1: tell me what happened. <laughs> and God, got, that you, was, you that your, was a real that yeah. was a real shock. So oh. you kind of get your elevator pitch, right? Mm. So um it took a while to get that elevator pitch. And at first um, uh yeah kind of traumatic when it happened um uh traumatic dealing with it for the first couple of months um i guess you know if i fast forward now i'm kind of six or seven months out from it so um i'm a lot more uh i guess um stable about the the decision or or comfortable with you Mm. know what happened over six months ago um you know there's still a bit of resentment there um which i think is you know sometimes difficult to Um, to, to retire. But, um, you know, I've I've managed actually to look back at my time at AdRoll and go, Hey, it was an awesome business, great group of people. Um, obviously it didn't end the way that we were all hoping for, but, Mm. um, you know, it's definitely opened up other opportunities. And, you know, at the end of the day, I've had a, you know, six month holiday, you know, I'd call it where I've had a lot of fun and spent a lot of time with my family. So, so that's been, that's been awesome. And were you, were you, I mean, though I think things can come as a shock,
0: um, but I sort of look at this idea of sort of capacity as a sort of being a fuel tank um i know that when i experienced my failure i had zero capacity so my tank was empty and as a result of that when when i when i experienced it um it had a bigger impact on me because i wasn't physically well and i wasn't like i was drinking too much and i wasn't um you know in a good headspace when it happened to you what was your capacity were you in like because i because i think you experienced failure um the, all the failures can be bad but and they can be can be a surprise but i think if you've got capacity reserves you can buffer them a little bit better mm. and and looking at you see, you seem like in pretty good shape six months after so you know where were you at at that point when
1: when yeah. you know kind of hit so so my my way of dealing with stress is um very different i internalize i try to segment things you know mm. or you know uh, by by internalizing things as much as i can and i can do that for a short period of time um Uh, The other thing that I do with, you know, when I get stressed is I just go and hammer myself doing lots of exercise. I go cycling, running, swimming, surfing, you know, you name it. I will just and train you know 10 times a week and initially I start going this is awesome I feel great um, but you can only do that for about three weeks and then you start to um, th- then you start to almost get sick because you're um, you're overdoing it at work um, you're dealing with with stress and the way in which you're trying to deal with stress is by um, doing loads and loads of exercise which actually just drops your Im- immune system over 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 time mm-hmm. you know if you think about why do you train you do it to feel healthy to you know get you know an endorphin rush and mm-hmm. Type of thing. And that actually runs out. So you end up training harder and harder and harder to get the same endorphin rush, um, which just puts you into into a hole. Um, when you're in the middle of it, it's so difficult to deal with. But when you're a couple of months out from it, you suddenly go, God, running twice a day and going surfing, <sighs> um exhausted. yeah, probably wasn't a good idea. But at the time it's like, that's the way I'm dealing yeah, with yeah. it, type of thing. So um, I guess, you know, I felt like my reserves were good at the time, um, but it's only in hindsight where you look at it and you go, Actually you know what I probably need to put a cap on some of the exercise yeah like it's, it's probably overcompensating I don't Absolutely. have a problem with exercise as you can tell my, my body is,
0: <laughs> is a temple um, and and did you I mean so you've got a partner you've, you've obviously got a family did you buffer them from that do are they involved not involved how does that work that- uh,
1: so oh, I've got two boys um, uh, twelve and a nine uh, and an eight year old. Mm. Um, they're so empathetic all yeah. the time.
0: <laughs> Would you encourage them to be a startup founder? Is no. <laughs> really the question I'm getting to. You know what?
1: When I'm extremely frustrated with them, yes, that's what I, I'm like. Uh, if you, you don't behave. Yeah, you, you, you're 12, aren't you ready to move out and go and you know create your own business? <laughs> yes, if you don't behave, I'll put you into an incubator. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much, <laughs> yeah. I, I wouldn't say my boys were uh, the the most empathetic or, or understanding. It took a bit of uh, explaining as to why I was home at, at home so often. Um, mm-hmm. and then you know you start to get questions from you know especially my older son. It was like, why are you at home all the time? You know what. Well, um, why you're not at AdRoll? You know that type of thing. That's actually quite difficult to explain to, you know, to kids because they don't have full context and and uh, don't yet understand the value of money and you know exactly what a what a business is. So, um, that was difficult. Um, when I came home the day that you know the pin was pulled on AdRoll mm-hmm. and uh, you know I was at home at eleven thirty in the morning and my wife just happened to be home as well mm-hmm. having a coffee and I said, well, I think you're going to be seeing a fair bit more of me. <laughs> She's like, damn. Hope <laughs> you don't mind. <laughs> my have to share your house through, you know, share a house throughout the day, yeah. and uh, and that type of thing. But no, she was um, she was awesome, right? Which was, um, uh, you know, take some time out. Let's get focused on the next thing. Um, you know, the first question is all right. Is always, are we good for money? I'm mm. Like, yep that's not a that's not a concern. Mm. So then it is. Um, well, when are we going on holidays next? <laughs> so-
0: <laughs> Yeah, because you can't sit around and play Xbox all day. Yeah, exactly. Um, And look, and so for me, like I, I, the thing that hit me was a lack of routine. um, Because I guess your day is pretty regulated. um, You know, when you're working, you know, full time, and and actually, it exacerbated my depression at the time because. I didn't really have anything to do. I wasn't Mm -hmm. going to kind of get dressed up in a suit and sort of walk around the city in some sort of, uh, kind of days. So, um, you know, I had to sort of start putting structure and that got me kind of into this idea of sort of morning routines and rituals generally. Um, and that's had a huge impact on me both personally, but also when I speak to founders now around, um, this idea of, you know, not necessarily completely structuring out your day, but, but prioritizing yourself, um, as, as part of that. Do you have, I mean, how did you deal with that sort of the, le- firstly, the, the unstructure, mm. um, that, you know, comes with, you know, a, a break, um, for me, I couldn't necessarily fully enjoy it. You know, everybody goes, oh, I wish I had six months off because I would go and do things every day. And I'm like, yeah, but I worried for six months, you know, yeah. and I couldn't fully enjoy it. Um, how did you spend, uh, you know, the time and, and and deal with the sort of the level of unstructure? And then I guess the second part of that question is, do you have a structure until your day now?
1: Yep. Uh, so uh, in December, we went away for four or five weeks. We jumped in our camper trailer and just went bush for, for five weeks, awesome. which, was, uh, which was great. That was the best thing that we ever did because – no phones, pretty much. Um, mm. You're out of range in most places, um, and you're doing things completely outside of the city. So you've got no ability to um, to interact with people from your industry, which <laughs> was uh, which was great. Plus, you're forced to spend time in a confined space with your family. And um, I'd say the big win out of that was, you know, we spent five weeks living in a tent together, and we we're all speaking to each other when we uh, when we got home. So, yep. and everyone made it home. No one got left by the side of the roads, <laughs> which is a bonus. <laughs> That's a that's a win. <laughs> yeah, totally. there, there were there were times when it was getting close to someone getting left behind. <laughs> there were times when you were considering putting them into an incubator. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah, absolutely. Um, but you know, uh, from a structure perspective, um, like I, I've always had, um, like a like a base of a routine. Mm-hmm. Um, I typically exercise first thing in the morning. Um, and more often than not. Early before the sun gets up, I actually love training. When so it's you're still a morning dark. person, absolutely. Yeah, I think much more clearly in the morning, um, uh, and, and also training in the morning, I find much more rewarding, and it actually just kickstarts my day. So, um, you know, I live in Northern Beaches, so I'll typically be down at Manly or somewhere, you know, outside, um, you know, very early on. So there's something about being, um, you know, I'm one of those crazy people, which is, you know, down the beach very early. I'm not one of the crazy people that actually swim um, in the dark, but there are. So there's always someone crazier than you. Um, um, which is something that I've uh, that I've learned, but you know, from that perspective, you know, get started early, um, have a plan for your day, um, and you know, I've always been, you know, re- like a, a obsessive about calendar management and punctuality um, okay. is something that I've always just been super focused on. So, you know, I live to my, you know, live by my calendar, um, but I also stick to my time. So, it doesn't matter whether I'm working or whether I'm doing. Um, you know things when i'm not working um my you know my calendar is so important but also the times that are in my calendar are you know are really important as well so um i've planned stuff out i've actually started using a, a couple of tools um to help with my calendar man- oh, yeah. management so um there was this tool that i found called EV, Evie e v i e which is an an ai powered personal assistant um who actually reads your emails and responds to you and the people that you're meeting with in natural language and picks up on the the language in the emails it's like Like having an EA, really? It's a piece of technology. It is
0: awesome. Have you tried Clara?
1: I've not tried Clara.
0: Clara from Clara Labs, which is it, but it's mainly a meeting scheduler. So, um, but again, it's natural language. So, um, I trialled that AI assistant
1: for a while, and I had people who couldn't tell whether or not um, it was human or not. I I had the same thing with Evie. It was uh, people saying. Sharpie why do you have an EA like mm. do you have your own EA for like your own personal stuff I was like no it's actually an AI powered assistant even though it like said in the tagline every time she'd sent an mm. email um, that it was an an AI powered personal assistant people just picked up on the fact or just thought that it was a um a person so and, and it's for meeting scheduling or is it, it, or it does
0: actually read emails and and uh, Dissects them and works out that people want to meet with you at particular times. So yeah,
1: works. it's a productivity tool. So right. it does meeting uh, scheduling, but it'll, it'll, it's uh, broad-based productivity. So, um, yeah, for anyone wanting to invest in it, um, get in a queue behind me because I've already told them I want to get in as really? soon as possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Based out of the US? Ba- no, based out of Singapore. Really? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jungle no. Ventures is in on it um, early on, I think. So, okay. um, yeah, re- really interesting piece of technology. Expensive? Uh, no, no, like 30 bucks a month. Okay, so I'll get it. yeah, E-V-I-E. have a look. E V I E, E V I E V I E. Yeah, there we go. I'm onto it now. Yep. i love it. I love a good productivity hack. So, so you, so you're a big scheduler. Yep, absolutely. So, um, having a plan, you know, I, I guess myself and my wife will, you know, sit down on a Sunday night and it's like, all right, what have we got on this week? When are you going to be home? When are you going to be, uh you know, there to do rugby? Kids off to school? You know, all of that type of stuff. So, mm. um, you know, having a plan for the week is, um, is is really important. So. Uh, actually it doesn't matter whether I'm working or not working. Mm. Um, uh, you know, I've always got to have a structure around, um, around my day. I actually hate sitting around and do, you know, doing yep. nothing. So, um, always need to have a, you know, a plan and, uh, you know, some kind of, um, you know, process for what I'm doing.
0: Yeah, and do, are you a big traveller? Do you do you have to do a lot of travel? You've been up in Queensland, I guess, on the most recent gig.
1: Yeah, so over the past six months, I've spent a lot of time in both Brisbane and Melbourne. Mm. Um, uh, Brisbane mainly for um, Collider, which is the Queensland yep. University of Technology Accelerator that I've been involved with. Um, also down in Melbourne, because I've been working with a couple of other businesses down there. Mm. So, um, so I've been, you know, travelling a fair bit um, domestically. Um, up until the end of last year, I was over in San Francisco four to five times a year. So yeah, I always right. seem to have been travelling you know, for all of my roles, I've always yep. traveled and, somewhere. And so. do you have
0: like a travel ritual? you got travel hacks? Because I am like OCD when it comes to, um, you know, travel. Like, Absolutely. I've got to carry on. I've got to take the melatonin. I've got the work. So oh, yeah. what, what, are your, what, are your, what are your travel hacks?
1: So um, when traveling to the US, um, my hack is on the morning that you leave, you get up. Crazy early, actually. Just get yourself onto, um, you know, the time zone over there. So if you get up at three in the morning, then you're basically, you know, almost, uh, you know, their their morning. Mm. Um, go and train a lot that morning, so okay. you just end up, end up, you know, exhausted. Um, get to the airport, um, go in the lounge, have a big meal, um, get on the plane, watch a couple of movies, and then you end up sleeping for, I'd you know, that. seven to eight hours. Um, you wake up at the equivalent of about four or five in the morning, uh, West Coast time, which basically means you you Pretty have no, no no jet lag on the um, when you arrive there, um, my trips to um, you know San Francisco were usually only about four or five days long, so you almost didn't have time to um, to have uh, to have jet lag. But I'd find I'd just you know, end up sleeping more on the plane in total than I did you know in the whole time that I was in the city over there. So, mm. um, but you know, tra- travel hacks were um, not. Us- I wouldn't take sleeping medication, um, especially on the plane. Um, mm. Just feel like it makes you drowsy and uh, not not drowsy, but, uh, hungover almost the next day. Mm. Um, Um, but, uh, you know, I don't drink a lot, so I just, you know, don't drink on a plane either, so... Um, you know, lots of lots of fluids, pretty much. So, um, that that's my travel hack for you know for the US. But my travel hack domestically, domestically, it's it's relatively easy. You get on the early flight, you just sort of have to give yourself time to get to and then into the airport right. at you know six six thirty in the morning, which is a nightmare in Sydney. Mm. Um, you know, carry on only. Um, and I've got my iPad with content, um, you know, laid out on it. So as soon as I get on the plane, I put my earbuds in. Um, and I just you know. I don't want to talk to anyone when I'm, when I'm on a plane. Yep. Do you yeah. work out when you're when you go away? Do you take your gear with you? Absolutely, yeah. always. Yeah, hit, hit the
0: hotel gym. Yep, always. I always take it with me. I don't use it. A- <laughs> <laughs> you've got a gym membership. <laughs> like, it's like I'm, totally, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a- keeping myself fit
1: by having a gym membership <laughs> my, in my pocket.
0: My my, my shoes have travelled the world amazingly. They've and, done a lot of kilometres. Uh, they They've got their own frequent fly car, but they've not done a lot of road kilometres. Yeah. <laughs> they they've done more air kilometres than they have road. <laughs> um, so you you uh you've you've done a couple of um or probably many um angel investments. Yep. Um, when you're looking at a startup what is um what are the criteria that you look at i mean because all angel investors kind of have their own little voodoo um what what are the most important criteria for you if somebody's coming to pitch you for a, for an investment
1: yeah um so almost going back to something that we spoke about a little bit earlier but um i want to hit i want to see the purpose almost like the why you know why is someone themselves putting them why are they putting themselves into a startup um and what's the purpose for their business that's the that's the first thing um you know are they good communicators i think it's really important for anyone that's doing a startup especially to be the front the face of their startup uh to you know be a good a good communicator paint the paint the vision um explain what the market opportunity is how they are actually going to leverage that and what the you know what the opportunity for that business happens to happens to be um i really want to see why they're committed as well you know what why are you going into this you know what what's happened over the past um you know couple of years 5 years whatever it happens to be that's led you to going into this particular startup. That sort of and, you know, narrative around sort of their their connection with the problem, like I mean, Absolutely, the problem. yeah, they have to have come from that industry. You know, I think anyone that's saying, "Oh, I've got this great," you know, if I if I personally went and tried to do a fintech. Mm-hmm. Um, Everyone should go and ask me why Why? you're doing a fintech. You know nothing about financial services. (laughs) you got got an ICO coming up. (laughs) (laughs) Funny story there. No, I I don't. But uh, someone actually mentioned to me towards the end of last year that I've been working with, oh, they wanted to to do an ICO. I'm like, why? Why? but geez it's a shame we weren't doing this three years ago two two years ago because you would have cleaned up
0: yeah so
1: um yeah i think you know who if you're creating a startup it's got to be a natural progression from your previous experience so you've got to have a personal connection with the industry with clients with you know understand the challenges that you're um that you're trying to solve um and be able to be able to show that um anyone that you know the other thing that i also want to see is while someone can paint the vision um for their business i want to be able to see that they can do the tactics right. I want to see that they can go down the shop and buy milk, um, that mm. they can execute, that they can follow up, that they can, um, you know, just be able to do – Not you know, it's a left brain, right brain type of stuff. It's like I've got to be able to paint a vision but I've got to go and do the day-to-day tactics um, and be able to execute because that's where – um, so many startups fail. It's like, hey, I've got a great idea, but turning that idea into reality is what all the hard work is and you want to be able to see that they can do the do the hard work and that comes out in how they pitch, the quality of their pitch documentation, um, how they do their financials um, and, you know, how they've thought about, you know, the customer acquisition process and and, and the reality behind that. Um, do you – because it's controversial,
0: I guess, because a lot of people um, have very fixed opinions. Do you care about co-founding teams versus solo founders? Don't care, have a preference? Because I mean, because the – the I guess the unspoken kind of – I guess the rule is that uh, most investors prefer co-founding teams, mm. you know, the hacker, the hipster and the hustler, as they like to say. Um, I've experienced really – kind of no consistency across that I've seen co-founding teams that have been you know absolute you know Divorce Central and, mm. you know, in marriage counselling and I've seen co-founding that have been amazing. Do you have a preference?
1: Uh, I, I don't have a personal preference, to be honest. Um, I, I think whoever's starting a business, if it's the tech guy, they need to be able to engage and understand a commercial, you know, commercial co-founder or mm. commercial partner in the business in some capacity or they've got to have an appreciation for where their, you know, where their skill gap lies and it goes vice, vice versa. If you're a non-technical founder... You need to be able to understand what technology you're going to be able to develop, um, how it's, you know, how you're going to do it, what skills you're actually going to need, how you're going to interview and be able to ensure that that's aligned, you know, the technology is aligned with your, your product and your, your, and your vision as well. Um. Uh, listen, I think if I have a look at some of my recent example, you know, I've got a business like Audience Republic, which you know started off with Jared, good, just good business, yeah, great, great business. Um, now it was Jared to start with, you know, he's mm. non technical, but he very quickly brought in a technical co founder, um, in Jason. So the two of them work very well together. Um, so you know, whilst and at the you know at the birth of that business, it was a non technical solo co founder. Jared realized what his uh, blind spots were. So, um, you know, that's you know that's really important but then if i have a look another business that i've just gone in on a business called brandolo um which i picked up on out of uh, the accelerator program it has a co-founding team you know Mm. brian who is a commercial guy um and marco who is a full stack developer with a masters in you know ai so it's like these two and these two guys work really really well together now i think you know if you look at a co-founding team you almost need to look at it um from the outside as an investor um Mm. you know what's this marriage like um you know how well do they work together um can they learn and work with each other in the right way um do they really complement each other's skills um and i think those are the things that you really need to to look at and you know from a also personal experience when i started alua media um chris and myself had complementary skill sets chris was product you know editorial um he was a journalist as a background and he built the websites you know he actually coded the websites up himself I wouldn't have known what to do um, and equally had, he had no idea how to go about selling media onto onto these sites and building a marketing plan. Right. So, you know, we, we um, complemented each other really well but we established the foundations from the start where we said, you know, these are our areas of responsibility but these are how we're going to work together to ensure that we collaborate um, to build a successful business. Yeah, I mean, look,
0: I have, um, you know, I spent a lot of time coaching founders and top of the agenda of a lot of those is co-founder issues, which is, you know, always a challenge and, you know, kind of, Co-founders who are at each other's throats uh, end up, you know, ending businesses, um, you know, rather than sort of building them, and, and it can be can be a huge challenge. Um, do you know in the pitch whether or not you're going to invest? Are you sort of a, are you either you know I can tell straight away, or, or are you more of a, I'm going to be considered and kind of do full DD? Uh,
1: no, I'm gut feel a lot <laughs> yeah, of the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, listen, the, the thing I've probably learnt over the last couple of years is to invest into things into a market that I understand. Um, but also into businesses where I feel like I can add some strategic value. Um, and those are the businesses that I naturally just understand or yeah, gravitate towards. Um, and, you know, in the group that I'm involved with, they're the ones that are doing the best. The one that I've gone in on, which um, I just don't understand the category, is probably the one that is having the biggest um, biggest challenges at the moment.
0: Mm. And And do you think there is – like a formula for a good pitch? Do you do you think it's all about the, the 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 pitcher or do you think it's it's more about the structure or I mean I'm sure we've both seen our fair share of shocking pitches.
1: Yeah. It's a combination um, of both. Um I think there needs to be a good story in the pitch. Um the pitch deck itself needs to be, you know, it needs to be a good piece of work. Um and you know, if you are, you know, I'm from the media marketing and <laughs> advertising space. So if someone's working in the media marketing and advertising <laughs> space, you certainly hope that there can't they're, be a distraction. <laughs> that, that's right. You know, the way in which their brand is represented needs to be consistent. The um, you know, the creative there needs to look good. the The presentation itself needs to be a good piece of work. There needs to be a story, like a, you know, a. a, a You know, a decent story and the right flow through the, um, through the presentation, but also the guy or girl pitching, um, needs to be able to communicate really clearly and succinctly around, you know, their connection to the, to the industry, why it makes sense, why they believe there's an issue that needs to be solved, um, you know, why they can solve it, how they're going to do it. Um, but also be really clear around, you know, what is it they're raising money for? What, you know, why are they raising money? Mm. You know, why would anyone want to raise money if you didn't have to? you know, why are you giving away your business to, to other people? Um, but if you are raising money to really escalate, um, you know, a unique opportunity that no one else can leverage right at the moment, that's a great story. So Yeah, and I'm of, I'm of the firm belief that capital doesn't always solve early stage technology problems.
0: So, you know, in a lot of instances, if the value proposition isn't strong or the business model isn't strong, no amount of money is going to
1: solve it. That's right. Sometimes too much money um, can cause the problem as opposed to not enough money. And I think that, you know, some of those businesses, I think you wrote about this, you know, the businesses that raise too much money too quickly um, are the ones that think, oh, this is easy. I'll just keep doing this forever afterwards. Um, And then the second time around when they go back to market to raise money six months later, they suddenly go God, this is really difficult. Yeah. I didn't expect it was gonna be so hard to raise money. So
0: And and I think I can also plaster over um, significant issues. So, if you've got too much money, you can you can throw that at a problem and you don't have that, I guess, that that sense of, um, I guess, hunger and creativity that, that sometimes scarcity of resource
1: generates. Absolutely. You know, w- what's the oxygen that keeps businesses alive? It's money. Mm. Um, now, the money comes from two forms. It comes from investment or revenue. Mm. Um, what's the best of those two for, you know, for- <laughs> all, Revenue all day it long. It should be revenue. If you can get yourself to, you know, cash flow positive- as quickly as possible, um, there should be no need to raise money unless it's for a strategic growth initiative or you know something that's really really important to the business. But is actually going to you know if you invest in a product and technology, it's going to have a cumulative impact on your ability to sell. So that's a you know that's a great reason to to raise money. I think every time I've seen a pitch. From someone that said, oh, we're raising money and 80% of it's going to sales and marketing, I've walked out the door because mm. I've built sales and marketing teams. Mm. I know how difficult it is to recruit those people and to get it right. I'm not going to throw my money at something which I'm at arm's length from. Yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah. So
0: uh, we'll a couple of quick questions to finish off. Um, let's start with uh, book book you're currently reading or favorite book.
1: Uh, this could be a very long answer, actually. That's okay. So, oh, good. Well, let's make it a slow fire question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I probably read about a book a week, so okay. um, there's a there's a whole list there. Um, Are you I'm- a
0: digital guy or a paper guy?
1: I hate reading on paper now. Um, yeah. You're, yeah. You're a Kindle or, uh, I've actually read my iPad. So, yeah. um, yeah, a Kindle app on my, on my iPad. It's just mm. easy and it means that when I, uh, you know, at night, um, it's yeah. there. I don't have to have Keep a light, light on. on yeah. yeah. And quite often I wake up with the oh, iPad yeah. halfway, you know, on my yeah. face yeah, still. So.
0: Yeah. Or the one where you, when you drop it on your nose and i yeah. break it. Yeah, yeah. Or
1: you, or you hear it, the thud as it hits uh, the floor type yeah, of thing. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently reading a book called Endure Mind, Body and Curiously and the Curiously elastic limits of human performance. So, um, it's about, uh, uh exercise and the way in which people have um reached their absolute limits through uh through training. Like brain plasticity or just no, no. Just, just exercise. Exercise. Uh so it starts off talking about the guy that was trying to break the two hour marathon last year or right. the year before oh, with those, the those three. Was Nike, three Nike. The guys. Nike thing, yeah. So reading that, it's, uh, it's actually fascinating. Um uh if, if I probably group my uh favourite books into a couple of different categories like fact fiction and crossover between fact and fiction type yep. of thing. Um uh, best fiction book that I've read recently, Breath by Tim Winton, okay. um, about surfing in Western Australia. Okay, re- but it's a fiction book. Yeah, absolutely. It's an awesome book. Really? So, um, yeah, re- a really good book. I think they've just uh, released a movie about it. A um, couple of crossovers between fact and fiction, um, Dark Emu by Bruce Pascoe, um, really interesting book about uh, Aborigines um, in Australia and what a sophisticated culture that they were. Um, so there's a lot of fact around – um, his book, but it's dramatised to a to okay, a degree. So, so re- really interesting. Actually, gives a good insight to think that um, Aborigines in Australia were not hunter gatherers. They had sophisticated um, uh, you know, uh, techniques social. to yeah, uh, social uh, social constructs, but also in which there were ways in which they managed the land. So, um, re- really interesting book. Um, if you're uh, you know, reading anything in the startup book, uh, startup world, um. Has anyone not read Zero to One?
0: Yeah, Peter
1: Thiel. It's a great book. Great book. You have to read it. Um, I don't know. Have you heard a bit about this book, Unicorn Tears? Oh, yeah. I think I read it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: The the thing I liked about um, Peter Thiel, the zero to one, um, which was sort of it was recommended to me many many years ago, is is his views on pricing, um, which I really really like. So there's that dead zone. You're either in that sort of you know priced appropriately, you know self service, or you're at a you know high touch. It sounds obvious, yeah. um, But if you're in a startup and you're caught right in the middle at that sort of thousand dollar price point where you're you're not high enough to warrant. Um you know, direct sales, but you're you're not um you know cheap enough
1: to kind of get credit card you're in that sort of dead zone of pricing yeah and then, then there's also kind of buy behavior. Um, you know, issues, you know, pricing, mm. you know, tied to pricing strategy, yeah. what's the value associated with it? Is anyone going to, you know, treat yeah. you seriously? If you give your product away for free, mm. people treat it like a free product. They yeah. don't give it any value. The so. interesting
0: history behind that book is that actually it actually was just a series of lectures that he gave that somebody transcribed. Yeah, I know. And, and he ultimately sort of did some editing and turned into a book.
1: Yeah, great book. Yeah, great yeah. book. It like, um, it like he hasn't
0: had enough success already. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
1: I'll, I'll wrap with this question really really quickly. Um, in the world of uh, technology, there's mm. two books. Um, one that I absolutely loved, Flash Boys by uh, Michael Lewis. It's about high high frequency trading in the financial markets okay. in the early 2000s. Um, uh, really, really interesting book. Um, and then there was one that I read. I don't know if were, if I really liked it or not, but it was called Disrupted. Um, it's actually about HubSpot. So an insider's okay. view of HubSpot by a guy that was in his fifties when he started there in the marketing team. So phenomenal. That'd um, be really interesting. Really. Massive culture shock for for him going into into HubSpot. And and
0: it's just his experience,
1: his personal experience, yeah, at HubSpot. Yes. Wow. Yeah.
0: That would that would be very very
1: interesting. Yep.
0: Um. So favorite app, Strava. Stry, look at you, fitness person. Blockfolio. Okay. Depending on what day of the week it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh, actually, Goodreads. Yeah? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Seem to get a lot of my rating material from there.
0: Okay. Um, podcasts.
1: Uh, Next Billion Seconds by Mark Pesci.
0: Okay. Um, what's what's the predominant focus?
1: Oh, it's future, future focus, future looking. This is where we're at. Are you a big um, podcast? Uh, not listener? not really. Like i more uh, of a reader. Yeah, I, I read more than I do um, podcasts. Actually, when I'm in the car, I'll just you know, listen to the radio most of the time more than a more than a podcast. But I was speaking to Mark actually last week up in up in Brizzy, so um, had listened to a couple of his podcasts previously. So was you know listening to them over the weekend.
0: Fantastic. And an Australian startup that needs some special attention, or one that you'd sort of think that probably needs it's probably an unsung hero uh, one you've it, invested in most likely yeah. <laughs> you've got to choose between your children <laughs> I've got I've got some content coming out soon which is uh, how
1: do you des- how do you decide on your favourite child <laughs> or start up <laughs> and should you have a favourite I'm like Absolutely. You yes. should have a favourite. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You just don't tell your kids that you have <laughs> a favourite. <laughs> uh, listen, I'll, I'll give it to you. They're my favourites at the moment. doesn't mean that I don't love you all, but um, Audience Republic is the one that I've been, yeah. been involved with the longest at the moment. Um, great Market Opportunity, um, you know, good revenue growth, great product development, um has, you know, been able to secure investment at different times, but it's based off really good um fundamentals of the business. And so the
0: primary problem they're solving is
1: They are helping um music events and festivals sell more tickets through um word of mouth marketing, which is leverage from social media data. Yeah, and so business
0: I know as well. They've done some great work over the past yeah. couple of years as well.
1: Yeah, really good business, good opportunity. Um, and has been purely focused on one category, um, for the last couple of years, which means that there's lots of learnings to help leapfrog into into others over the next uh, next year or two.
0: Okay. And um, if people want to find out more about you, Instagram, blogs,
1: LinkedIn, where's the best place for people to find you? LinkedIn out? is pretty much my only social channel. Well so. yeah,
0: I mean so before we finish, I mean let's talk about the LinkedIn blow up of two thousand and eighteen. <laughs> um, the most viral post I think on LinkedIn. I, I feel sorry for that poor poor uh, poor petrol station attendant. Um, that was pretty amazing. Um, for those of you who don't know, um, Ben had probably an amazing uh, viral post of Blub and LinkedIn. How many how many views it was? About three
1: hundred and eighty thousand views on LinkedIn and that was in the space within a week yeah. um it was yeah. it was nuts now i've got quite a few followers on linkedin i think yeah. it's quite a few it's about five thousand or something like that yeah. um you know an average post for me gets you know a couple of thousand views you know relatively quickly um this one um and just for anyone that may not have uh, seen it i'd been using the bp me app to buy petrol which is mm. basically means you don't have to go into the shop um and uh at you know for whatever reason it didn't work so i just Filled up, used the app, drove off, um, then came home about three weeks later to a letter from the cops saying, um, mate, you better – go and call the petrol station and uh, let them know that you're going to pay them and uh, this was the copper in their letter better give me a call as well. Mm. So I actually responded to the the copper and I said listen I'm really offended by this because um, I use the app, I'm a registered customer Um, I actually looked in the transaction history and uh, it had been processed or the payment had been processed just a couple of days later. There was just a technology failure um, and process failure by BP. Mm. So I wrote um, an article on LinkedIn at a dead time on a Friday afternoon thinking that oh, this won't get much of a run um, and it blew up within a couple of hours mm. um, and my, my um, content was not actually I wasn't a social media activist about it it no. was to basically say hey this is actually a really poor use of customer data um, uh, when you have um, you know customer experience is so important for every business to think about um, there's got to be better ways for you know BP to um, think about their technology strategy and, and the impact on, on marketing so and especially
0: like the fail safe right so the reality is that- They've got your data. They've got your credit card data. They know yeah. it was a technology transaction that fell over, and their immediate response was to call the cops rather yeah. than just put the transaction through again, which is actually what they ultimately did. Um, how was their – I mean, the – the the. Um, I remember just following it over the course of a couple of days. It was just – I just kept, kept coming in my feed as people continued to comment on it. Um, how was their response post that? Did they handle it
1: well? They handled it really well. Yep. Um, I did publish a couple of follow-ups um, yep. afterwards to – um, kind of. One was to say, oh, you know, this was the way it was dealt with. But then I also wrote something around, you know, what actually drives a, um, you know, a viral post like that. But I don't mm. think anyone's really nailed that. But um, uh, BP's response was was really good. Um, you know, within 24 hours, this was on a Saturday. Someone had contacted me via LinkedIn saying, "Hey, I work at BP Marketing. We'd love to um speak to you. Can I get your contact details? Um, we'll get in contact with you on Monday." Ended up uh, speaking to someone later that week and um, conversation was really good. It was, uh, hey, this is what happened. We're going to explain the situation. This is why it's happened. This is what we're going to do to ensure that this does not happen again to Mm. any of our customers. Really appreciate, uh, you know, any – um, you know anything that you could tell us as to how we can improve and all of that type of thing. So their, their response was really good and I got to speak to someone very senior inside the BP marketing team mm. in um, in Australia. Um, and then at the end of it, uh, it was quite funny. She goes, oh, is there anything else that we can do to keep you satisfied? And I was like, this is kind of awkward. <laughs> is this where I ask for compensation? <laughs> so listen, the way BP handled it, I, I, I give them absolute credit to yep. um, their crisis management management was awesome i mean i
0: I think you did them a favor i mean i remember reading the original post and it wasn't um it it was pretty matter of fact right and it was certainly this is a technology failure it's a customer experience failure yeah um and and i think it was a really i I think why it resonated was that your audience is predominantly you know people in the startup and technology world and you go yeah that just seems so obvious that you wouldn't fail in that way rather than fail um safely and um you know, I, I think you've ultimately done them a favour, right? I mean, in terms of that customer experience.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I'm sure that they adjusted some of their processes, Um, you know, uh, rechecked their technology Um, and, and, you know, what that was actually doing for them. But uh, the other thing it was quite interesting, when I had a look at the people that were commenting and sharing the content, a lot of them were people in customer experience roles in other businesses. So this was being used as a case study by other marketers to go, God, we better make sure that this type of thing does not happen <laughs> Has to anybody us. checked our,
0: our app? I'm sure there's yeah. a whole bunch. Bunch of people sweating <laughs> in in a lot of other petrol stations at that yeah, point in time. Absolutely. Um, mate, well, look, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I really appreciate your candor and, and talking to us about your your career. And um, we'd love to have you back at some point.
1: No worries. Thanks, Jamie.
0: Hey, pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Good chatting. You soon. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed Ben's interview. Today's episode was brought to you by The Founder Lab, who provide courses and programs to help build better founders. You can find out more about them at www.thefounderlab.com.au. And if you'd like to find out more about me or the podcast, then check out www.jamiepride.com. Thanks for listening and subscribe to make sure you get all the latest podcast episodes. Have a great week and don't forget to take care of yourself.